Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Espensky. Today we are discussing chapter 22. This is part 2. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So chapter 22 we continue and uh, Pete we're up to the part that starts with the line but what after all is mysticism which I think is a bloody good question. It's a reasonably good question for us to start right now by going into early 20th century psychology that didn't even recognise it. They said it was a pathological state. <laughs> yes. And not normal, it's almost psychotic, schizophrenic. Which, you know, I'm not surprised because after all, it is one of the sciences that only look at the phenomenal world. Ding, 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 jackpot. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Score 10. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, and it hasn't changed in a hundred years. And, and as Spensky said, you know, not only did they, they they sort of say it was rubbish, they they kind of bundled everything in together and said, you know, real mystical states, pseudo mystical perversions of the usual consciousness, and purely pathological states were all bundled into one big group. There you go. And I like the I like the last bit. And more or less conscious deceit. Oh, I haven't got that in mind. That's brilliant. Oh, really? Do you not sometimes get the idea that when he was doing the revision, which is the one I've got, little bits of bitterness came came out and he added (laughs) these little bits? (laughs) I I love the disdain, shall we say. It is disdain. (laughs) I, I like that contempt because obviously I'm a very contemptuous person at the best of times, especially when it comes to modern cult religion science, i.e. all of it. Yes, I'm with you there, Pete. I think uh, if you had a chat to Aspensky, he would relish your rants. In fact, I dare say he'd join I think I think he could probably match and outdo my rants. Well, it's possible. I mean, I, I, it's, hard, it's for me possible. To, hard for me to su- succumb to that, but I, I do believe that he is quite capable of the, the, the utmost bitterness and contempt. But nevertheless... Nevertheless, he is. I just, I just, I'm sorry. I just want to read this. I'm, I'm not a big fan of just reading out passages, but those classifications of early 20th century psychology of states of myth. See, science has to put these labels and boxes on them so that they can actually try to, to put them somewhere to make sense of it. But there are no boxes for mysticism. But they've, he says, Spensky says, um, embracing one com- common classification. Real mystical states, pseudo-mystical perversions of the usual state, purely psychopathic states, and more or less conscious deceit. <laughs> and that's <laughs> that was how psychology saw mystical states, even though there was so much evidence of things super fantastic going on with people, especially when the British Empire, and I mean the British Empire, nobody else's, we had access to the entire world. We were the ones that were in China. We were the ones that were in India, for example, and all of the Far East. We were the ones in the South Pacific. We were the ones in Australia and New Zealand. We were the ones in the Americas. We were the ones even in South America, really. 
Um, although, you know, they do speak Spanish, but our influence in our Navy was so great that nothing in South America could actually operate without our, our say-so. And the fact of it is that we were the ones that went around, we had access and we had people that were actually having um, these experiences. It was like, what the hell's going on? What's, what's this mystical experience? Some people came back and some people like General Fuller came back from India and, you know, he's one of the great interpreters of yoga, Kabbalism, and so on, and meditation. And he's a general. So we're not talking about, you know, like drug addict hippies that went out there. We're talking about really serious men of the empire, men of the establishment that came back. And it was usually men uh, in, the, in those days. And yet they come back and science, even though they've got all of these like real establishment figures saying, hang on, there's something going on here. But the science had to like stand on its own two feet and say, hang on, you, you, you've come into our territory. We'll tell you what it is. And what it is, is conscious deceit. Go away, have a lie down and come back later. Then get back into the army and kill people. You know, honestly, it, it really is that pathetic. The, the, the pseudo-religion of science. Well, it's not even a pseudo-religion, is it? It is the religion. It's where people worship doctors who are the priests. Yep, I dig. So, Spensky doesn't, doesn't leave us short as... as <laughs> no, he on. doesn't. He, he then says, before going further, let us establish certain criteria for the identification of real mystical states. And he brings back Professor James, who he's quite fond mm-hmm. of these days. I think he's yeah. actually replaced quite quite a few of his previous uh, you mean like fallback. <laughs> yeah, like Hinton, yes. <laughs> At, uh, even Kant. He hasn't mentioned Kant in a long time. No, he hasn't. So, you know, Professor James has been, has been the flavour of the uh, second part of the book. So Professor James says the following sort of definitions of mystical states. Yeah. Ineffability which is incapable of being expressed. Yep. Noetic quality, which uh, I've looked all these up. It relates tell. to uh, mental activity or intellect. Um, and an example would be the noetic quality of a mystical experience refers to the sense of revelation. I got that off mm. uh, the uh, internet. And uh, transiency, <laughs> which, <laughs> which of course is, you know, um, something that's only lasting a short time. Yep. And passivity which is, um, you know, being passive, not moving. Well, hang on, that's like saying, I'm going to define this box by saying it's a box. Okay, well, remaining constant, being of a uh, non-motional state. But what about um, passivity being receptive? Okay, let's let's talk about two principles in nature if you believe in nature, which after reading this book, you shouldn't. But let's talk about two principles in dualistic nature. Act, the active element in anything and the passive element. Now, in procreation of human beings, the female element is passive and receptive. The active element is, is male and active. And that's, that's well documented that this is how we, we look upon these things as active and passive as well. But receptivity, now passivity, easily identifies with the mystical state because most of the mystical state you see, or certainly here described, is this idea of the Eastern meditation where you're still passive, but you are receptive to the incoming of the divine. So passivity also also could mean receptivity as well. That's that's what I mean. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. That is a good point. Well, 
the Spensky doesn't finish there. Ed, would you like to talk about any of those particular in particular, by the way, before we move on? No, no, I'm I'm quite good with this. I I, I think ineffable. You know, you you hear about God described as immortal, ineffable God, and it is unknowable. I mean, this is the thing. It's you're in the fact that if when we were talking about Brahma in the previous um, episode. Um, the idea of Brahma, you know, some of the Vedic scholars have difficulty interpreting it because it's nothing, which means it's everything at the same time. It's in, in, in other words, we come back to this thing where language is not capable of expressing what we are trying to talk about, what we're trying to to discuss, and that's ineffable. Uh, you know, it, it is true. I mean, and this word is is definitely in the. English theologi theological canon because we have a hymn, Immortal, Invisible, Ineffable God. It's not a common one, but it is there. Uh, you know, this, this idea of the God being ineffable. And that's what this mystical state is, because this mystical state, Brahma, whatever, whatever Eastern term you want to apply to it, you could also apply the term God and should apply the term God. It's interesting. It's interesting. And the Spinsky you know, as, as we move on a little bit, mm -hmm. we'll see yeah. how he, he doesn't just focus on one uh, area of, of religion or, or mystic experience. It's mm -hmm. it's Christian, it's uh, Eastern, it's the whole shooting yeah. match. So, which I want to get to. Let's get into it. So what he's saying after that is, well, you know, these, this is what Professor James says, uh, some of the, some of the uh, aspects of mystical states, but... Some of these are also simple emotional states, and he doesn't exactly define how mystical states can be distinguished from emotional states. Yeah, because you do need a defining line. If you're going to put labels on things, you have to be able to say, this is the inside of the box and this is the outside of the box, don't you? That's right. And I suppose when you, when you look at things like noetic quality, that could be an emotional, you know, it's a sense of revelation is an emotion. Well, it certainly it would certainly stimulate an emotional state, wouldn't it? Well, it would. It would. It certainly does, and everybody that's ever written about it, um, we'll use one example, would be Eckhart Tolle. His revelation in the introduction to his book, The Power of Now, was definitely an emotional state. Yeah, yeah. So this is where Spensky feels Professor James has let us down. Oh, no! Surely not! <laughs> I was coming to rely on Professor James. <laughs> Well, I know you might have to revert back to Hinton soon enough, but I, Good I, God. I think we're pretty free of Hinton by now. Yep. So anyway, uh, so he says, considering mystical states as knowledge by expanded consciousness. And, and I like the fact he's used the word by, not of, knowledge mm -hmm. by expanded consciousness. And uh, he said it's possible to give uh, definite criteria for the discernment and the differentiation from the generality of psychic experiences. Yeah, this is good. This this little list is good. Yeah, the list is great. I just want to explore that term psychic experiences. So what do you think is the difference between a psychic experience and a mystical experience? Zero. That's that's just my opinion. That's just my 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 yeah. opinion. I'm going to lump anything that is I'm going to use the word supernatural because nature representing the 3D dualistic uh, approach to understanding reality. Anything that goes beyond that, anything that anything that contemporary physics cannot label, put in a box, and measure. I mean, that is the job of physics: is to measure. 
anything that it can't, I'm going to call a supernatural experience. And I would say that, well, yes, it's it's not the same. Um, if you were at a mediumistic seance and you had a, an experience of hearing voices, let's not talk about whether or not the seance was fake or this and that. Let's just say if you were there, let's suppose that there were noises and knockings on the wall and what have you, ghostly apparitions. Um, or if you were meditating and you had a hallucinatory experience or an auditory experience, people hear bells and all kinds of stuff. I'm going to say that all supernatural exist, uh, experiences are of the same nature. They're, telling, yeah, you the, they're you. telling you there's something else. So personally, I don't differentiate. But at that time, when Spensky was writing this, we were still in that hotbed of interest uh, amongst the chattering classes at any rate of mediumship and seances and God knows what else. So he and I think that's what he's referring yeah, to. Yeah, I think that's what he's referring to. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right because he has also shown his disdain for the <laughs> yes, I know. for that side of uh, well I trickery. I think he's, he, he implied it was. Yeah, well, the thing was, uh, uh, no, it's just worth saying that in his time, a lot of it had been exposed as fake. Many seances they'd gone in and they'd found, you know, wall knockers and table lifters and all kinds of things. It had been exposed, so it was. You couldn't trust what you were hearing, you know, when people were saying, yeah. I went to a seance the other night, it was brilliant. Oh, my God, my Aunt Ethel came through and she told me so many things, I'm going to cry. Uh, you can't believe it because a lot, we don't know which were real, and we, but we do know ones that were caught out and enough were caught out for us to kind of like say, well, I'm not sure that I can trust any of the, any of it. Yeah, and I think your your point you made um, a couple of podcasts ago was you know we just had the war as well, and there was, there was a lot of people had lost very dear dear loved yeah. ones, and you know this would give them comfort if, if someone could say I'm connecting with them. So you know it would have been a very very popular thing. And as usual, certain people said, "Oh, we can make money out of their misery. Yeah, exactly uh, let, so. Let's set yeah, up a fake seance and give them an experience. They'll feel comfort. We'll get rich." Well, do you know what? I suppose if they got comfort, they might have got their money's worth. But uh, at the same time, yes. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Let's have a look at this list. Yeah, yeah. Let's go for the list. Okay. So, mystical states give knowledge which nothing else can give. And he has italicized knowledge and mm -hmm. he has capitalized which nothing else can give. Yeah. So mystical experience is beyond physics. In other words, it can't be measured. We can't say, oh, I got this amount of knowledge in my meditation and somebody laughs at you and goes, ha, 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 you're not very, very good at this. The force is stronger with me. I meditated and I got this knowledge. You can't do that. And that's, that's exactly what he's saying. It is knowledge which nothing else can give. So you can't read it in a book, in other words. Physics can't, yeah. can't determine this and it can't measure it. Um, the only way that you will have a mystical experience um, laid down in a book is possibly by um, re the received inspiration of a poet. I mean, read um, Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats, and, uh, for example. Um, and yet, even there, you will not get the experience that the poet had or received simply because and I don't think we need to go through this too many times, language is absolutely inadequate at expressing what actually was experienced. End of story. 
and and I think that concept that we've talked about a lot about the ocean pouring into the drop it would be like that if the ocean was all there was all the knowledge that there mm, is that's and that's what's meant yeah the the ocean can't create a drop without without its entire self being in the drop and yeah, again so. now we're stuck with like with language you have to try to actually feel that somehow because you can't imagine it it's not even possible to visualize it because to visualize it you are you actually using um symbols from the 3d phenomenal world picture a drop picture an ocean and try to see them as the one thing you cannot you, you so you, you can't even do it in images no I, I think the only well for me the only thing i can do with that one is accept it yeah and let my mind kind of grapple you let, with it but accept yeah, let your it. unconscious your unconscious will give you symbols that that mean that for you but they are only symbols they're only symbols that allow you to to have some meaning behind it. You're not actually experiencing it at that point. You're looking at a symbol. Anyway, moving on. Mystical states part two. So that's one of the four. So the second one, mystical states give knowledge of the noumenal world with all its signs and characteristics. And again, italicized is noumenal world. In mine, he hasn't said the noumenal world. Oh, do tell. <laughs> what has he said? Well, He's done something that he's obviously thought about. He's called it mystical states give knowledge of the, in italics, real world with all its signs like and characteristics. Better. I'll tell you why I think it's clever. Shall I? Shall I do that? I, I think it's best. I think it's clever that he's changed it from noumenal because noumenal is a term that at that time was being used by Carl Jung, for example, or certainly he was kind of come to use it. And it stood outside of the phenomenal world, okay? So people could easily find comfort in saying, what a load of woo-woo. It doesn't actually matter what the noumenal world is. So Spensky is saying, hang on, you are actually in the noumenal world here and you're, by believing in the illusion. We're talking about the real world beyond this illusion. And he's, he's changed the mindset for people that read this. Yeah, I like that. People that see, read it and see the word noumenal world, they say, oh, yeah, he's, this is an interesting book, and, he, and he's talking about that woo-woo thing again. Whereas now he's making sure that as you're holding the book in your hand, you're holding something that is an illusion, and that what the mystical state is beyond this phenomenal thing of holding books and sitting on chairs, that's the real world out there. And he's used this term before to describe, you know, mm. in, 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 in recent chapters. So I think it was a good change that he made there to, to, to change noumenal uh, to real so that it changes the perception of the reader. Yeah, and it stops you thinking dualistically, like our world and the other world. Yeah, the real world. Yeah, there's only one real world with all its signs and characteristics. Yeah, we're just experiencing a perception of the real world here. Mm. Um, so yeah. we're still, yes, no, I, I agree. That that was a great change, Svensky. Signs and characteristics, what do you imagine he means by that? Well, because language is not useful, I, I suppose the only thing you can see are signs and get some sort of characteristic of it, like being a feeling of it or a notion of it. That's what I think he means. Guess what? Even modern science... God bless it. Guess what uh, modern psychology and so on accept as being the only language 
that the subconscious, I prefer unconscious mind, um, understands and communicates with. Tell me. Signs and characteristics. We call them symbols. Okay. There is there is universal symbolism. If ever you get a, um, if you're meditating and the the image of the moon comes up, or a pool, we're talking about the unconscious mind here, the subconscious mind, or an ocean. Those things are signs of the unconscious mind. If you get a labyrinth, it's the unconscious mind. If you get a forest, it's the unconscious mind. Now, in folk stories and mythology and what now have been diminished into fairy stories, can you see how the symbols of the unconscious mind are used to impart wisdom to the listener? There are nothing but labyrinths, forests, dragons to be slayed, etc., etc., in these stories. We should yeah, not be right. and diminish them. They are teaching the listener things. Things about how to live, how to how to rise above the mundane and become something very special. That's why they've survived and persisted. So, and those stories are using language as well, so... Yeah, but because symbols, symbols that are given to us by our own unconscious mind are symbols that our unconscious mind knows that we will understand because they are referenced in the phenomenal world. But they stimulate parts of the, the psyche. It's it's fantastic. This is the basis of incredible work, um, hypnotic work that's done on journeying. Now, you've been on hypnotic journeys with me. How did it work out? Yeah, there was a lot of symbolism. Wasn't there just? I came back with my own symbolism, which uh, I I still have a connection with, even after that. Just, do you get positive results from that experience? Has it changed? Oh, absolutely. Hasn't it just? So you can see now the unconscious mind in a mystical experience can give you what you want. Now, the unconscious mind, your unconscious mind, isn't separate from everything else. It's just drawing down on everything. It says, OK, you need to have this understanding. So I'm going to give I'm going to impart this in, uh, understanding to you by giving you a vision of a symbol. And it did. And you brought it back because I was guiding you through it and I knew you'd have them and I knew that you'd, I wanted to make sure that they came back. When you came back from the hypnotic experience, that they were fully installed, ready for you to use in your life there and then. And I made sure that that, that was established. And then we came back out into, out of the, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something controversial. The hypnotic experience is a mystical experience. We take you to a different state of consciousness. And you come back with those things intact, ready to use. The mystical experience is valuable. It's not just empty-headed, sitting there, hoping for ascension or nirvana. It is much more. And people who've used it over, down through the ages, over thousands of years, understand this. Isn't it interesting that in the West, everybody's been fooled into ascension and empty-head meditation as goals? And they've been hidden from a real purpose of meditation that allows you to have great experiences in the phenomenal world by bringing knowledge from the mystical world that the phenomenal world isn't giving you about yourself. By freeing you from the box that, um, that a society's caged ideas and, and limiting beliefs put you in. All of this can be gained through hypnosis um, or you can have your own 
meditation or mystical experience if you know how to get those results, which which thankfully I well, do. Well, you know, I, I would say hypnosis and meditation, that there's a big crossover area. I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm running that four-week program at the moment with people. I mean, I've sold it out. Um, and everybody, the first thing people understand is that there is literally no difference. There is absolutely no difference. No, these are just labels. These are just labels. Your experience in, in the meditational thing that I have will be hypnotic. If you come to me for a hip, for hypnosis, for change therapy, you will have a mystical experience. It's the same thing. I would agree with you there. I mean, the empty-headed meditation where you just sit there and, and try and control the mind and all that is i suppose that's useful in getting a technique it does, together, but it's it not, does. you not, know look, i'm not going to say it doesn't have benefits because it does but it doesn't mm. the the idea that it'll take you to this uh, nirvana or or you'll get this flash of sartori i mean how many people do you know that have achieved that oh that's right none zero <laughs> nil keep going there are people in the world that manage it um but very very few and far between and you know virtually i certainly don't know anybody there are i i should imagine you know when you read books like autobiography of a yoga yogi um by paramahansa yogananda he does talk about people that that have like his guru sri yukteswar definitely did and but it's you know it's few and far between so why do it why not do something that's actually going to have value for you in this particular experience? Because frankly, if all you want to do is go back to the other dimension from which you believe you came, why have the human experience? Or is it that you want to have a mystical experience so that it enriches your experience here in the phenomenal world, in which case empty-headed meditation ain't going to do that for you? And this is where I think Svensky's going. He's, he's, he's basically giving us the clues for, you know, using, yeah, I using agree. the mystical experience Absolutely. to enhance this, this world. And so that that's great. Those mystical states, this is the second one again, yeah, giving knowledge world, of the, though, yeah. the real world yeah. with all its signs and characteristics. So that's... Yeah, that makes a load of sense, that the signs and characteristics, especially uh, this, now. This, this is almost Velikovsky in the next one. You read it in case I've got a very outdated version of number three. Okay. The mystical states of men of different ages and different peoples exhibit an astonishing similarity, sometimes amounting to complete identity. In other words, there has been the same experience throughout history and all over the world. The mystical experience, as described by people who are trying to describe it, is always, always, without exception, the same. So when he says with, um, to complete identity, I'm, I'm guessing that identity means identicalness. Yes, that's exactly yes. what he means. In other words, when you talk to somebody from um, like a, a First Nation person in Australia about dream time, it'll be the same as the shaman on the North American plains. They'll use different language, but you will be able to get from it that they've had the same experience. Which in itself says a lot for it because uh, there was no internet over the ages to, to yep. share that information. No, nope, um, Often you, could, you, would, you wouldn't even get in a boat and, <laughs> and sort of visit. It's like uh, total isolation. This is the farce of science. I mean, I grew up, you know, um, in, a, in an age where I was, I was, you know, in the mid-50s, for example, Thor Heyerdahl did that great expedition, Kantiki, where he was 
he was trying to say a balsa wood raft could go across the Pacific to prove that the peoples of the the islands were connected with. It's like, oh, for God's sake, was that was it even worthwhile? He, the the pyramids in Guatemala, those step pyramids in Guatemala, he said were related to the Egyptian ones. So I'm going to make a raft out of papyrus and call it Ra and go across the Atlantic in it. Oh, really? Anyway, he did. <laughs> he did both of those things. But scientifically, it didn't prove a thing. And the fact is, that's not how this this information was translated. People had mystical experiences where they connected with exactly the same thing. I want to point out here that the shamanic experience, by the way, the Dreamtime experience of First Nation Australians is entirely shamanic. And I'm going to say, from my point of view, on a level that's never achieved by shamanic cultures elsewhere, because they literally live it, one foot in the dream time, one foot in the phenomenal world, at all times, from the moment they're born to the moment they die, and then beyond, they're in the dream time. They never come out of it. And this isn't like one shaman in a tribe. This is all of them. This is how they are yeah. as a people. Um, but... The shamanic aspect of that is they see visions, they see phenom they see symbols and things, and phenomenal things even come to them as symbols. And, and the shamanic experience is the same. You go on the shamanic journey, you will have visions. Another version another phrase for the shamanic journey is the vision quest. This thing is universal. It is absolutely universal. Even in the Far East, where we, 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 we have this ludicrous belief in the West that, oh, the Far East, they're so ahead of us. When they meditate, they know how to go empty-headed in this. That's only one aspect of meditation, even for Buddhists and for Hindus. There, are, there is a lot of vision questing in, in the meditation practices in the East. Let's not kid ourselves, there is. Yeah. What we now call gurus in, in India... Oh, you know, there's a guru in this part of India and there's a guru in that part. Um, those are the tribal shamans. Duh. You know, work it out. <laughs> Duh. It's the same characteristic. They're having the same experience. You know, get off that horse. You know, anyway, it, it is the same characteristic. The point is that it's the same everywhere. You can identify the experience by hearing what people say it is. Language is inadequate in every in every part of the world, but you'll know they've had the same experience. You will. Yeah. No. I. I and I think the thing is that if you look at those pyramids, for example, you just can't imagine someone in this part of the world going, "Oh, I think I might uh, grab a boat and take a couple of years to duck over and have a chat about this with people in the other half of the world, just to make sure we get the same same uh, pyramid up." How about this? <laughs> How the hell do I know there is another part of the world? We won't go down exactly this road, right. but but I know that there's one, <laughs> and I'm so convinced of it that I'm going to take across one of the stormiest oceans on on Earth. I'm going to take a boat. Papyrus. I'm going to make a, take a boat made of papyrus, literally, so I can go over there and say, you know, well, you know what would be a good idea for you if you built this pyramid. <laughs> for God's Just sake. so you'd have one like us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then I'm going home again. I mean, I might as well go back home now. Uh, do you have any papyrus, Andy? I want to make another boat. This one's got a bit tatty. <laughs> ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. bloody ridiculous. Now, the uh, third one is the same. Your third one is the same as mine. So I'll give you yeah. my fourth one and yeah, see if they compare. 
The results of the mystical experience are entirely illogical from our ordinary point of view. They are superlogical, i.e. tertium organum, which is the key to the mystical experience, is applicable to them all in all its entirety. And there's a lot of italicising and there's a lot of capitalising and all of that. So I think Spinsky is really making a big point on that last one. So I think we should just break it up into little segments. It's very easy and it'll be real reasonably quick, believe it or not. Oh, well, go ahead then. Because <laughs> okay. I thought there was a lot in that. <laughs> okay, did you? Okay, right. Well, first of all, the first italicised um, phrase that I've got is entirely illogical. Yeah, from, which from we our, know. From our point of view. There you go. Because remember, we've just spent chapters talking about the new logic and the new mathematics yes, that don't work right. in this world. So that's what he means there. They are super logical. That's the next um, italicized phrase in, in mine. Mm -hmm. So they're, yes. they're entirely illogical from our ordinary point of view. They are super logical. That means that they do make sense if we apply the new logic by going out of the phenomenal and into the real world. In the real world, as he called it just, just a moment ago, this, this logic works. It's super logical because super means beyond or, or if you prefer better than, but it doesn't typically mean better than. It means beyond in many, in many senses, higher than. So this is probably what he means by um, knowledge by means of expanded consciousness. So hmm. it's super logical. So it's the super logical because we're out into the real world. You're experiencing it in the real world. Hmm. The mystical experience is an, is an experience of the real world and not this world of illusion, the phenomenal world. That's what he's saying. And he's linking that to tertium organum. Well, tertium organum is, the whole book is, is to get you into the mindset where you understand that this is an illusion, <laughs> the phenomenal world is an <laughs> illusion, and that the real world is something beyond the understanding of this world. This, the phenomenal world exists you know, as an illusion, only to let us have this fairground ride. It's to allow us to have this experience. But we're, but it isn't real any more than a um, a roller coaster ride is real. You Disney can call that ride the Magic Mountain all it likes, but it's neither magical nor is it a mountain. It's just an experience that you have, and it's no different. That's exactly right. So you know this this is and this is what Tertium Organum does is. Tell us, oh, you do realise you're only in a theme park, don't you? Don't worry about any of this. But you will actually be able to access the real world if you want to, just like your um, brothers in Australia have been doing since the beginning of time. You can access the dream time, but you can keep one foot in this world. And you can have both experiences. And wow, that's magical. Yeah. But the real world is the tertium, the world of tertium organum. It's the third knowledge, the third way of knowing. You can't know it here in the phenomenal world because language will stop you. Dualism will stop you. Those two together will wreck the experience. And especially if you try to apply logic to it. Well, the, well, the, lo the, lo the logic of this world, but the super oh, logic lo of this world, yes. the super logic, <laughs> the new logic works perfectly. We just can't express it here. What, what he's saying is that when we do have the mystical experience, we immediately revert to real logic and real mathematics so that we have the real experience. And that only is accessible through a mystical experience. You have to leave this world behind. 
and find a way of doing that. There are millions of ways of doing it, and people do do it. And Aspensky's making a big point, this entirely illogical three-dimensional logic, and the, the key uh, is that it is illogical because that's the key to the mystical experience. Yeah. Once you understand that this is fake, you can then recognise what's real. Yeah. Until you, until you understand that, you are still going to be trying to apply things that don't apply. I mean, I, I still maintain that in the early chapters, he repeated it too much to the point where I was sick of being told the same thing 30 times. But that's why he's done the work that he's done in this book. He starts off with mathematics and geometry and shows shows you the illogic when you, when you actually reduce it to its fundamental parts. And how time can't yeah. exist, logically. Time, even in our logic here, time can't exist. It has to be fake, and so on. And the present moment especially can't exist because exactly. it's either becoming the it's, past or becoming the future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. All that brain-bending has been tied mm. into a bow. And yet language, language is so difficult that everybody has come to this belief of you've got to live in the now, you've got to live in the present moment. As though that's the aspirational. And only if you do that, if if you live in the present moment like me, you'll have a happy life. Well, the present moment isn't the present moment. It is a small compressed bubble where you still access the immediate past and you still look to the immediate future. The present moment cannot exist. No, it cannot. A moment would have to have defined limits. What, what is the present moment for me to be living in the now? Well, it has to be something that, that has a beginning and an end. The moment has to have a beginning and an end, which means that part of it's behind me and a part of it's in front of me. You could say, I'm living in the now because all I care about is today and whatever tomorrow brings, I'll, I'll experience that tomorrow. But that's still not now, is it? Because you are thinking, well, what am I going to have for my tea today? I'll enjoy that. Do you know, I haven't had fish for a while. I'll have fish. You, that's not living in the moment, is it? That's not living in the now. You, you, you've narrowed the slice of time, but it's not living in the present moment. So, so start thinking about that, people. How do you live in the now? You don't. What you do do is you narrow the spectrum of your concern so that you don't worry about what will happen next week. Exactly so. And uh, Spensky makes a special point to say that this last point, point number four, which we've just mm -hmm. um, explained, is especially important. The illogicality of the data of mystical experience for science to repudiate them. That's right. So he's basically saying science couldn't box it in and give it a label and, and replicate it, etc., etc. So it said, oh, it doesn't exist. Yeah, well, science does that all the time, and it's been designed to do that. This is why I hate it. Um, what science could say is this is something that we don't understand yet and accept it. In instead, because science is the religion, and it's been designed to be a religion to keep people in a box, it has everything that's put before it, it has to have an answer for immediately. And so what it does is say, this is bullshit. It doesn't exist. It's crap. It's a lie. Mm. That's what science does to anything it can't explain. Hence why Velikovsky, for example, they, do you know that they burned his books? They had a book. Burning. I'm not fucking kidding you. We're talking about the 1950s. We're talking about just a decade after the Nazis were defeated in World War II. Um, the, the, no, the biggest notorious book burners in history, 
Um, and yet science, the religion of science, burned Velikovsky's books. Kid you not. Well, there's a clue as to the fact that they're probably very valuable. Yeah. But not to science. No. You know, and then they misinterpret the people that they set up as their gods and idols. Einstein kept saying to his life, but you know, I'm not happy with my general and special relativity. They don't work. They don't work. This idea of folding, you know, gravity, folding space and all this stuff, don't work. But you people, you people using it, it's like ridiculous. Hubble had the same thing. Redshift means that everything's working away and there has to be a big bang. No, no, it's not that. Oh, God, I'm dead. So, you know, but this this is interesting. So science repudiates it. In his day, it did. And my God, more than ever in this day. Oh, no, we are 100 years on from when this was written. And Aspensky does point out that just because something is illogical does not mean that it's a pointer to the real world. But if... All pointers to the real world are illogical. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a, you know, it's, that's it's a, the way you look at it. It's, that's a nice, um, in, interestingly enough, that's a nice logical concept. If you were doing um, philosophy and you were doing logic 101, that would be the sort of phrase that, that would make sense. Yes, well. <laughs> no, but it is. It's like A, a does not necessarily mean B, but, but for B, you know, all B... Are in A. It, it, it's it's one of those things. It's great. You can. There's lots and lots of little. They're almost like mathematical problems that you you have to solve in mm. in logic like that. They don't use phrases like we're doing. They'll use it like it's like algebra. All A are B, but all B are not necessarily A. And he's he's done it here. So in this case, uh, all real world pointers are illogical, but not all illogical pointers are real world. That's right. Yeah. And that's exactly the same thing. And so he then goes, Spensky then goes on to say that in order to penetrate there with our logic, we have to get a new logic, a new organ of thought. Now, this is no, nothing new to the book. He's said this for a couple of chapters now. But it's, <laughs> you, you, you won't, for 20. You won't get there using... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the next bit I think is interesting. He says, The consciousness of the necessity for such an instrument of thought undoubtedly existed far back. So it's not new. All of this is not new. Um, For what in substance does the formula Tatuamasi represent, if not the fundamental axiom of transcendental logic? Or higher logic, as he says in my book. Sorry, what did he say? He calls it higher logic, not transcendental in my book. I'm glad he does, because otherwise New new Ages would then start pinning it on transcendental meditation, which is pretty empty-headed and would go down the wrong track. So higher is better. Mm, that higher logic, yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's, he's done a lot of um, explanation of the Tatuamazi expression mm. in previous chapters, so he's tying that right Thou in art here. that. And, that, and not, not to leave mathematics out of that, he then goes, well, thou art that means... Thou art both thou and not thou, and corresponds to the superlogical formula A is both A and not A. I prefer the superlogical formula. Honestly, I, I, you, you know, you can sit around with phrases of you know thou art that. Ooh, what's what's that then? Is it that table or is it that chair? I don't want that. A is both A and not A. This is where algebra and mathematics really helps us to understand things, rather than get hooked up into objects uh, to, to try to, to try to get meaning 
it makes it unpersonalized. Yeah, I, I think when you when you get when you get like a yeah an abstract formula like A is both A and not A, you don't get hooked up on that kettle is both the kettle and not a kettle. You know, because you you won't get that. You know, you mm. your your mind will then go other places and you'll be fixed in the logic of it. Whereas if it's abstract, it can sit out there on its own. And if you say it's say you did say it's that kettle and not that kettle, you're still being dualistic, aren't you? Well, yeah. Whereas this formula isn't dualistic. No. It's it's basically saying at the same time it is A and it's not A. All at the same time. You don't even have to use the letter A. You could just put a dot on the page. So it's dot is both dot and not dot. In fact, the way you do it is you'd have a dot on the page and then you'd write is both dot and and then an empty space, not dot. <laughs> <laughs> so the point is, it's that is the super logical thinking. And so mm. Spensky's now going to go into a whole um, expose on why this thinking isn't new and where we found it in loads of uh, texts and mystical um, forums Aye. from ages back. And I think it's worth mentioning them slightly, you know, if we could just just yeah. men mention the, the, the brief Yeah, points. I mean, I've I, I pulled out a few eyes out of Oh, come on then, yeah, the, you, let's go through the ones. have a few as well. Yeah, just, put, put, just go through yours, it'll be good, because, you know, we just want examples. Yeah. examples, exactly so. So, uh, so... The um, the start of it is from um, he starts looking at describing heaven and the gods. He talks about Plotinus, and uh, I'll just give you a little preface. He says one such misunderstood attempt to construe a system of higher logic to give a precise instrument of thought penetrating beyond the limits of the visible world is the treatise of Plotinus. So in the the great expose, he's pulled out of that treatise. Uh, he's italicised some points, and I'm not sure whether these were italicised in Plotinus's work, but I'm going to assume that, that Vespensky's italicised because he feels it important. Well, I'll just give you a clue. Nobody italicised anything in ancient texts. They just wrote. <laughs> right, what am I saying? <laughs> oh, what font are you using? <laughs> What font? Oh, I see you've bold and italicised that. It must be important. <laughs> <laughs> that hieroglyphic is a little darker than the one that's just yeah, folded right. that hieroglyphic. The lines are thicker. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the, Egyptian, the Egyptians did do that. They, they, oh, did they? Yeah, hieroglyphics, they have cartouches, what they call a cartouche. It's like a big oval shape. And the hieroglyphics in there, they often refer to the name of a king or something. But, but anything that's important that, that needs to be highlighted, you'll find in a cartouche. Oh, well, there you are. There you are. So it's not a new, it's not a new concept either. Anyway, I, I <laughs> like being a bit frivolous. So let me, let me continue. Yeah. Okay. So, so Patinus is giving a, a whole expose about the fact that A is A and not A. This is what I, I've pulled out of it. So he's saying, so all things are everywhere and all is all. Each thing likewise is everything. And I think, you know, he's, he's just reiterating what Spensky's been talking about. Do you know what I'm interested? What I'm interested in there is why is this a misunderstood attempt? Because who's who's misinterpreting that? I think it's pretty clear. That's what he's saying. I would have thought so. There's a lot of examples of him saying exactly the same yeah. thing over and over in different ways. Yeah. Um, I think it's misunderstood, perhaps, because people wanted to, to pin it 
to the phenomenal world and they couldn't. They didn't realise he was using a higher logic. And I think that's I think that's Spensky's point. These texts have these keys, but when you read them, because they don't sound logical, then you misunderstand what they're actually saying. And but the 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 writings are trying to explain something that can't be explained with the logic. So of course they're going to be misunderstood the if really you're not aware of that. The really interesting thing is that most of these texts were destroyed. You know, we the fact that we've got Plotinus, oh, really? yeah, yeah. Um, the great library at I mean Alexandria was sacked. Alexandria was sacked, and the there was a woman that probably one of the wisest and smartest and cleverest people that ever lived who is massively associated with the library at Alexandria. And look, in my senility, I can't remember her name. I think it was Hippolyta, but do not quote me on this. Anyway, she was murdered in the sacking of the, the libraries and so on. But we lost lots of ancient texts that have been re rediscovered. This is part of the Renaissance, by the way. This is what the Renaissance was, the rebirth of classical um, culture. Um, was because we found texts, and these texts refer to books that we cannot find. And these are the ones that are lost in the Alexandrian Library. And I'm going to suggest, I have no way of proving this, but I'm going to suggest that the destruction of the library at Alexandria was to destroy texts that would point to the freedom of humanity from a society that wanted to enslave us further. So, anyway. Yeah, well, all, all pointers are to that, isn't it? Because... Mm. Even the things that we have handed down that weren't written in text and were handed yeah. down as stories have been minimalised to just folklore. And fairy stories. The worst ones are the fairy stories. And then you Disneyfy them and that makes them even worse. Even the stories then that haven't been turned into a Disney cartoon, they're lumped in with the same stuff. It's The trivialisation is horrific. And it's not, mm. it's not done unknowingly. These people know what they're doing. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's that's taken us away from Ospensky, and I don't want to go away from that. So Plotinus, another extract he pulls out where he's basically saying where everything and everything is is us. The sun too, which is there, is all the stars. That's right. And again, each, each star, star is, is the, the sun, sun and all the stars. Yeah, I know. And he keeps going on. I mean, we don't have to keep listing everything, do we? He just keeps giving you these lovely little analogies and these similes and these phrases that say that everything is part of a greater thing and the greater thing is part of the individual thing because that, that's the... Listen, what he's literally saying is the ocean is in the drop. Is he, is he not? He is. And and I think that, that, that I think why Aspensky's pulled, and, he, and there is quite a lot of this lump it in, that'll be my chap in this chapter and the next one, is because he's, he's saying, look, I, this is not a new way of thinking. We're just bringing back what... Has been known and for the these ages. people are separated by distance and time. It's the same thing, you know, and yet we get the same thing. I love, I've got to say, yeah. going just going past the Plotinus thing, I, I've got to do this. <laughs> I love this. Uspensky comes back in, he says, closely akin to Plotinus is Jacob Boehm, who was a common shoemaker in the German town of Görlitz. A common shoemaker. First of all, that's a bit... Um, Bit dismissive, isn't it? I mean, where would you have been without shoes, Spensky? But here's the other thing. Jacob Burma is one of the great writers on alchemy. One of the great alchemical giants of history. But he, but he was just but he was just a common shoemaker. Yeah, but I think Spensky's done that because he's he's 
also saying it's accessible to everybody. everybody. Yeah, not I, just these, I agree. These, a, it was just, yeah. it, it, it does seem um, indicative of the times where people of a certain class would look down upon the working working classes, even when it was an artisan with a great skill like shoemaking. <laughs> One that they bloody well, yeah. needed. Oh, and and Aspensky has, has been a bit guilty of that sort of uh, he attitude has a, he has uh, a bit. in previous chapters. So, you know, <laughs> but I... But I <laughs> so, so, so now... The, the cunning savage, the, the common woman, the four-year-old child, and now the common shoemaker can access all of this. <laughs> even, even the, yes, the common shoemaker. I mean, yes. Well, but I think, he, I think his point is that he, it's not just a state that these great philosophers can attain. It's yeah. also, you know, even down to the, the likes of a common shoemaker. Look at I, that. How did that happen? I would like to actually read, if you don't mind, the quote mm-hmm. that is put in from Jacob Burma's Yeah, book. please do. Jacob Burma was six, 25 when he had this Eckhart Tolle-like awakening experience. Remember, he was a common shoemaker. He hadn't been sitting there trying empty-headed meditation or anything, anything straight. He couldn't. He had to work for a living. And he had this experience. And bear in mind, this common shoemaker then goes out to write. What? How did he get this skill for literature? Where did this come from? Suddenly he's writing texts that have come down to us. But he wrote... Sitting one day in his room, his eyes fell upon a burnished pewter dish which reflected the sunshine with such marvellous splendour that he fell into an inward ecstasy. In other words, he got into a trance which was an altered state of consciousness. Ecstasy is a word that has been used to describe it, particularly for religious people, down through the ages, because it is a blissful experience. And it seemed to him as if he could now look into the principles and deepest foundations of things. Now, what a great phrase, because he doesn't get tied up with language. He doesn't say yeah. everything and nothing at the same time. He could look into the, di- the deepest pr- foundations of things. He believed that it was only a fancy, and in order to banish it from his mind, he went out upon the green. But here he remarked that he gazed into the very heart of things, the very herbs and grass and that actual nature harmonized with what he had inwardly seen. He said nothing of this to anyone, but praised and thanked God in silence. That is the best expose of the spontaneous mystical experience that I have ever read, which is why I laughed when Jacob Byrne was described, described as common shoemaker. This is this guy is the the great well, well I to me he is the greatest writer on alchemy but that uh, and that that is brilliant and I'll agree with you because when I read that I I felt like I understood yeah what he was saying yeah. having never experienced it myself yeah that's it it's like wow I want that too don't you want that <laughs> don't you don't we just yeah I certainly do listen listen at this of the first illumination Burma's biographer says. He learned to know the innermost foundation of nature and acquire the capacity to see henceforth with the eyes of the soul into the heart of all things, a faculty which remained with him even in his normal condition. In other words, he had become exactly how I have described Australian First Nation people. They are living constantly, non-stop, with one foot in the dream time, one foot in the phenomenal world. And it gives them 
strategic advantages for happiness and living and, and having a life experience in the phenomenal world. Jacob Bohm did have that phenomenal experience. He did. And I, I love the fact that just a little further down, once he could see, and I love that um, concept, the eyes of the soul. Yeah. Once he could see into nature, he discovered liniments and he could see beyond the, the herb or the uh, piece of grass or the bark of the tree to what its purpose is or what it can be used for, which I think is, because I've often wondered, how, how did people figure out that this piece of bark is great for as an antiseptic and how this piece of root is uh, a great tonic? How would they know? And I believe they pulled it out of the mystical experience. Oh, let me tell you something. Um, if you went on a vision quest journey, a shamanic journey, the shaman will tell you that the plants talk to him. If you go there, let's say you, you've got somebody that you know that has a medical problem and you, they call upon you to do the vision. Like in, in you know, South America, North America, or everywhere there's a shamanistic culture, they would actually do this journey. I use shamanistic rather than shamanic, by the way, because I don't believe that you can have a term. And there is a difference between istic and shamanic. I'll give you an example. Um, in the classical world, the Roman culture was considered to be, for a great part, Hellenistic. Hellenic means Greek. Hellenistic means Greekish. In other words, they were copying the Greek culture and the Greek style. So I use shamanistic there on purpose. I, I, do know, I do know my language, in case anybody wants to say that I've used it incorrectly, which some people do. Um, but the, these cultures, they would go to the shaman. The shaman will have a vision. The shaman will ask his guides or her guides, to take them to a world where they can find the solution to this problem. And if they're taken to an underworld or even a middle world or a high world, they will get to communicate with the plant. They'll say, how can you help me to fix this problem? And the plant will actually communicate with the shaman and say, this is how you use me to help that problem and this and that's how knowledge comes about the shaman would say that's how it happens now you can talk about you know this downloading from the collective unconscious and stuff that young talks about and you know that's mystical too but this is why i like shamanism because it's blunt to the point and it and you see things on a vision quest in terms and symbols that are that you can actually identify and bring back with you. And I'm assuming when he says the plants talk to him, it's not using language. They they provide symbols and possibly images. Could I'm, that be I'm, I'm guessing that every experience is different, and it might well be that they do use language. They say like, if you if you pick me and you boil me for three hours, and then you distill the the liquid that comes from me, and then you further distill it, and then you evaporate it so that it becomes a thicker mixture and then you add some of this and then you give it to this person they'll hate the taste of it but they'll be cured within a day it might say that i've no idea it's interesting isn't it because mm. everybody every shaman will have a different experience but they all they all say that the plants or the animals or whatever talk to them they communicate with them and they never say oh it comes as a feeling or anything they literally just say they you know the plants tell me what how to use them and how to work with them yeah because the plant has a soul like everything has a soul because we're all one thing and Spensky's already covered that aspect Absolutely. as well he's, so, he's, 
he has done a great job of layering things, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. I think it's been brilliant. Yeah. I, I, I literally, my only argument is that I wouldn't have needed the repetition of the mathematics at the beginning. But yeah. because telling us these things once would have been great. But nevertheless, here we are, and he has layered it brilliantly. And we do, we can refer back to the two-dimensional being being a line and the one-dimensional being being a dot. We do understand it, you know, <laughs> and we can see how yes, things Yes, yes, we won't forget it. Christ, not now. Anyway, so anyway, back 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 to you know Jacob Burma. That was that's really brilliant. And the interesting thing too is that Jacob Burma didn't get everything in one download. Like he he had illumination after illumination, mm-hmm. and they weren't just in quick succession either. So he had an, another one. Um, he said his first illumination in sixteen hundred wasn't complete, and so ten years later he had another experience. Yep. And and what he said is that. In that first experience, he he got chaotically, fragmentally, sort of glimpses of things. Yeah, that's right. But now they filled that in, this experience filled it in, and he got a coherent whole. How about, which, yeah, um, how they describe the the third one when it really came together for him is beautiful. I think, it, given that we have the limitations of language, I think it describes it amazingly well. Shall I read that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I I think so. He says, like a harp of many strings, of which each string is a separate instrument, while the whole is only one harp. Oh, my God, isn't that good? Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, I love that. I think that's superb. And that's, yeah, that's that's how he says all these fragmented... Yeah, the whole harp, though, is in each string, but each string is in the harp. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then the the final and complete illumination that he had The gate was open to me that in one quarter of an hour I saw and knew more than if I had been many years at university, at which I exceedingly admired and thereupon turned my praise to God for it, for I saw and knew the being of all things, the bis and the abyss, the eternal generation of the Holy Trinity, the descent and original of the world and of all creatures through divine wisdom. I knew and saw in myself all the three worlds, namely, one, the divine, angelical and paradisical, two, and the dark, the original of the nature to the fire, and three, then the eternal and visible world, being a procreation or external birth from both the internal and spiritual worlds and i saw and knew the whole working essence in the evil and the good and the original and the existence of each of them and likewise how the fruitful bearing womb of eternity brought forth so that i did not only greatly wonder at it but did also exceedingly rejoice now tell you what when you're sitting there having your empty-headed meditation and you've 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 managed to get your legs in the lotus position because you do yoga and everything, and you're on your little mat. Tell me what the hell it is that you think you're going to experience that comes even close to that. Do something differently, people. Do something differently. That's where you want to be. That is the paradise experience, and you can live like Jacob Burma, should you so desire, with one foot permanently in that world, experiencing that bliss, and you can use that knowledge to bring down to this illusory world to enhance your experience of living here in the illusion. Well done, Jacob Boma. Yeah, and and the point you made earlier, if he was a simple um, shoemaker, he probably didn't have a university education, and the fact that he didn't actually need one. Listen, the, the, the interesting thing is that the, the university experience is now 
becomes scientifically structured in as much as you put in a box, you have a degree, you have grades of your degree. Did you get a first? Did you get a second? What did you get? Then you get a master's and so on. Originally, it was a seat of learning. People knew you'd been to university and they knew that whether it had been effective for you, they would know when they spoke to you. You'd either be a nonce or you'd be, you'd be wise and people would come to you. And, and value your opinion. You learned things, you acquired knowledge, you, you installed that knowledge. Now you go all out to get a piece of paper on the wall. Yeah, let's move on. So these, these dialogues between disciple and master, the very last part of that, and I, I will just uh, note, in essence what he's saying is if it's, if it's easy, it's probably not the right way to go. If, if the world is all with it, then you've probably got to go against the, against the, swim against the tide. What the world does, you shouldn't do. You know, what the world doth that, do not thou. Yeah, in other words, whatever the world's doing, you do something else. If the world says you've got to go to university and get a degree, don't get one. That's very interesting that he's, he's really sort of summing up that, you know, how do I get there? How do I, how do I do this? Don't be a, don't be a lemming. You become an anarchistic, anti-establishment rebel. That's how you do it. It's virtually what he said. So even a hundred years ago, Spensky's bringing in uh, writings of someone centuries ago that says, "Don't don't follow the crowd. If you want to have the unique experience, you're not going to have it if you're doing what everyone else is doing." So anyway, that that's all I wanted to pull out of that. And so let's move on to well, this goes on for a long time. Yeah, I know. This is interesting, though. Just can I just have one bit at the bottom of my page? Please. It's another bit from this. The, you know, how may I arrive at the unity of will and how come into unity of vision? And the master says, okay, let the right eye look into eternity and the left eye looks backward into, into thee, into time. If, if you suffer yourself to be always looking into nature and the things of time, it will be impossible for you to ever arrive at the unity which that you wish for. In other words, you've got to do it by... Yes, have your experience in this world and look into nature, because that's what he means, the phenomenal world. But your other eye has to be accessing reality, the real world, because otherwise mm -hmm. you'll be trapped in this illusion forever. In other words, and what he's describing about having your right eye and left eye, the left eye looking back into time, i.e. the phenomenal world, and the right eye looking into the real world, he's describing, and this is the point of this chapter, exactly what the First Nation Australian people do by having one foot in the dream time and one foot in the phenomenal world at all times so that they never lose track of either. And I also like what he says about that. He says, don't let the left eye deceive you yeah. by continually making one representation after another and sort of stirring you up and, and, yeah. and making you focus. Um, and I think this is what where we've got to we have all this social media and the news and everything yeah. telling us look over here look over here look over here he says um let the right eye command back this left so allow the the looking to eternity to be the guide not the other way around i, I like that i know that we've got to wrap this up in a, in a little while uh, i i do want to put this other little bit of a dialogue it's fantastic. Um, the disciple asked his master, where do the souls go when they leave these mortal bodies? And the master answers, the soul doesn't go anywhere, doesn't need to go anywhere. Disciple, 
Doesn't it go into heaven or hell? Master, no, there's no such thing. There's no such entering into heaven or hell. The soul has heaven and no, hell. I love that. The soul has heaven and hell in itself. And which of the two states, either heaven or hell, shall be manifested in the soul? Um, well, that's where it stands. In other words, you have a choice. You can either decide to go to hell or you can go to heaven. <laughs> the choice is yours because you're everything. But I like and, it. And neither of them really exist anyway. It's just what yeah. you perceive. Exactly. And it's like, you know, so don't get wrapped up in this nonsense. If you want to go into hell, you know, you can choose to do it. If you want to go to heaven, you can choose to do it. But there's neither of them exist. And there's no need to go into any door. You don't have to go. You don't have to enter into anything. The soul doesn't have to do anything. Because it simply is. I love that. Yeah, me yeah. too. I, I like it. And I think yeah, Spensky then says the this quotations given yeah. here are su- yeah. <laughs> the quotations given here are sufficient to indicate the character of the writings of an unlearned shoemaker, and that is in italics, from the little provincial town in Germany of the sixteenth to seventeenth centuries. Boma is remarkable for the bright intellectuality of his comprehensions although there is in them a strong moral element also. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no strong moral elements in the quotes that Ospensky's given us, but Ospensky is, you know, good enough to say that there is more to these books. And if you wanted if you mm-hmm. wanted a moral foundation so that you could believe in these these writings, because remember what these writings are telling you is that there is no morality. Do you understand that? We've said this a million yeah, times. Yeah, we have covered that. There too, is yeah. no good, there is no evil. It is literally from a perception. We have a perception now where slavery is evil, but in ancient Greece it wasn't, and certainly it wasn't in Rome. Mm-hmm. And you know, and they are the foundations of our Western culture. So that I, I use those two rather than any other. You know, there's loads of cultures that have had slaves. I use those two because they're the foundations of Western culture. It is purely a perception. And I think with Spensky's whole chapter on morality, mm. he, he kind of nailed that. Yeah, he did. So you know. Um, I think that's a good place to stop. I do, I do too, because we're coming back to that's that's the end of Jacob Burma's um, parts that is yeah. he's put through, and we're going to come back to Professor James um, on Christian mysticism when we come back. And it's in Christian mysticism is important for us to talk to because for us and I and I would say that you know a lot of people that listen to us, we have grown up surrounded by Christianity. Yeah, others as well, but Christianity is the big religion of the Western world. It is. End of story. Not going to argue or debate it. It just simply is. So we'll come back to that later on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that part. Me too. And, uh... Me too. So we've got, yeah, St. Teresa and people like that, you know, and but he does relate them to the Upanishads and the Vedas. Oh, he does. He, yeah, he, so, he, there's something for everyone in this next yeah. part of the chapter. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks again, Pete, for having a great discussion. I love um, it. As always, enjoyed it immensely. Me too. It's been fantastic. It's great. And thank you, everyone, for listening.